the National Archives podcast series, Seasons in the Sun, The Battle for Britain, 1974 to 1979, presented by Dominic Sandbrook as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. Well, um, welcome, Dominic, and Thank you. many thanks for um, all coming along today. So let's start off. Perhaps you could um, tell us a little bit about Seasons in the Sun. Um, okay. The book um, uh, chronicles um, a pretty extraordinary moment in our recent history, which is the period from 1974 to 1979. So most people will immediately think of that as the as the sort of five-year prelude to the arrival on the scene of, of Mrs Thatcher, who uh, won the 1979 general election. And it's it's a very contentious period, I think, in our in our recent history because it um, it saw you know the IMF crisis, the winter of discontent, and so on. In many ways, very bleak times. But uh, it's also the time of the great you know the summer of 1976, the heat wave, uh, a period when unemployment was much lower than it was to be in the 1980s. The sort of heyday of you know Abba and um, Larry Grayson and uh, Tom Baker as Doctor Who and all these kind of things. So it's a kind of culturally quite a fun period uh, and one in which, in many ways, ordinary people were, I argue in the book, um, generally much better off than they'd ever been. Going on foreign holidays, uh, getting central heating for the first time, eating out, uh, drinking, trying wine instead of their usual drinks, all those kinds of things. Uh, but also one in which there was probably more anxiety about um, the fortunes of, as it were, Great Britain Limited, a sort of national angst about uh, national decline and our status comparative to our, our European competitors and so on. And in many ways, I, I mean, the, the subtitle of the book is The Battle for Britain. And in many ways, it was an extraordinarily polarised period, um, both the two Labour and the Tories sort of pulling apart, beginning to pull apart towards... Um, what you might call the political extremes, uh, a, a general sense, I think, in which um, the way things had worked since 1945 uh, wasn't quite working anymore and that uh, this, it was time for a new kind of solution and, and they're all different sort of schemes in the air. It's not clear who's going to win and who's going to come out on top. And, of course, uh, it's Margaret Thatcher who comes out on top, something that at the time seemed very unlikely. And, of course, it's the fourth book in this series that I've done. So I've done three books from 1956 onwards. And it's the same sort of, the book itself is the same sort of, I hate to use the word formula, but it is the same formula. So it's a sort of mixture of high politics and political narrative and there's stuff on, you know, Scotland, Scotland's disastrous 1978 World Cup uh, odyssey. Um, uh, um, I don't know... um, the career of Mary Whitehouse, the story of the Yorkshire Ripper, all of these kind of social and cultural stories sort of woven into the political narrative. So how did your four-book series come about? I had uh, just finished my PhD, uh, which was on American history, and I suggested to a publisher... Um, the, I had the idea of um, initially a book on, ironically, the Profumo scandal, which is much in the news at the moment... And I was talking about it to a publisher, and then it occurred to me that a lot of the things that I were in, was interested in talking about might actually be... It would be a, f- a fun exercise to kind of broaden it out a little bit. And then it occurred to me at the time, this was sort of about... Uh, it was about 2000, 2001. If you went into a branch of Waterstones, the, the modern British books stopped in 1945, by and large. And I just thought it would be an interesting exercise to, to write about our recent past treat it as history 
Um, and uh, the publishers were very keen on the idea. They went for it. And initially, I thought about three books would be more than enough to get from 1956 to 1990. And I've now done four, and I'm only up to 1979. So that sort of tells its own story about my total indiscipline um, as a writer. Um, and but will there be a fifth book in the series? There is, there is. Yeah, there will be. I'm writing it, uh, well, I'm researching it right now. It's a book um, that will go from 79 to uh, probably in the end of 1984. Um, and, of course, the difficulty... Is that the end of history? <laughs> yeah, all history came to an end. And, um, no, I think um, uh, it's a, it sort of stops in the... Mi- it would stop maybe in the middle of the minor strike, but I'd probably sort of tie the minor strike up um, before the end of the book. But uh, once you get after 1979, it becomes... There are various challenges. One is that... It becomes very difficult to stop Mrs. Thatcher overshadowing the book for it to become a lot of the books on the 80s that are out there, I think, are effectively sort of disguised biographies of Thatcher or, or accounts of the Thatcher administration. Mm-hmm. And you sort of have to get beyond that a bit. But also it's a period, I mean, the periods that I've written about, the 50s, 60s and 70s, people, of course, argue about what they meant and, and what went on, but they're nowhere near as polarising and contentious as the 1980s are. And I think it's an interesting challenge to try and write a book about the 1980s that hopefully... Um, goes beyond Thatcher. Yeah, goes beyond Thatcher and at least tries to establish some kind of middle ground um, rather than taking one or the other kind of very partisan position. Um, so going back to your book on really predominantly the 70s, um, what would you say are the key things that the ordinary person who might not know very much about the 70s um, what would they need to know? What are the key things? Oh, the key things. Well, I suppose one of the interesting things about the seventies is that um, I think it's for a lot of people. It's the kind of uh, to use the sort of jargon. Very, it's the tipping point um, for a lot of people in the transformation of um, quite a sort of closed, claustrophobic, um, nostalgic, backward-looking society towards what you might call a more aspirational sort of Thatcherite. Um, unequal, outward-looking one. So it's in the 1970s, for example, of course, that we enter um, what becomes the European Union. Uh, it's in the 70s, I think, that you see the big, the big change in the sort of role and perception of women in British society. It's in the 70s that you have the gay rights movement and so on. Uh, it's in the 70s that you have the launch of video recorders, kind of video culture, the, the idea of a sort of disposable information culture. Uh, the first computer, home computers are being built by people like Clive Sinclair towards the end of the 1970s. So we think about it just in terms of politics. When we think about the politics, you, people often think about sort of um, union leaders trooping in and out of number 10 and bin bags on the streets and all this kind of thing. But I think in many ways, the 70s is, I mean, this is certainly what uh, we argued in the TV series that we did. The 70s, that moment looks like the, the, the moment when a lot of the, the things we associate with a kind of post-Thatcher 21st century Britain sort of came embryonically into being. Um, and, uh, you know, the world in which, the world in the, the, the transformation from the 60s to the 80s, I think, was socially and culturally was um, enormous. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, people often associate it with the 60s, but I think a lot of it, for, certainly for ordinary people outside London, um, people who weren't necessarily university educated, I think a lot of those changes actually kicked in in the sort of mid to late 70s. 
Well, it sounds like uh, it was quite an enormous task, so many different topics, women, gay rights, mm -hmm. trade unionism, so many changes. How did you go about researching such a huge topic? It, it is difficult because you're sort of covering a lot of ground. Um, um, my, my books differ from, say, David Kiniston's books on post-war Britain because his generally don't have a sort of central driving narrative. They're, they're brilliant books and I admire them very much and they're kind of more of a mosaic than mine. Mine, um, I sort of hang everything on the... There's a political narrative that cuts through the book um, that's sort of hopefully carrying the reader along. And then I sort of hang the various other things onto that, if you like, the sort of the, the social and cultural um, stuff. And uh, I, I find... I mean, I, to me, the, the, the sources that I enjoy reading the most and I find most sort of enriching are probably newspapers, the popular press, and in many ways the more popular the better. You know, something like the Daily Mirror or the Daily Express uh, from the 70s. You can learn an enormous amount, and there's so much sort of colour, so much sort of richness um, in those papers. Or, or diaries, of course, people's diaries. Um, so where did you go for diaries? Well, I don't use them as much as David does. Uh, there's some diaries that people have put online, um, for example, there's a diary of a teenage girl in Essex who was keep, uh, keeping a diary throughout the three-day week. Um, so she's sort of talking about the power cuts and all the rest of it. But it's, what's, what's fun is that, of course, that is much less important to her than camping trips or going to buy sweets or particularly what's on top of the pops. So it and gives the, it puts some perspective. It does, yeah, the kind of weekly ritual of watching Top of the Pops. Um, of course, slightly tarnished now because of uh, various <laughs> revelations, but um, it kind of gives you a, um, I don't know, it gives you, I guess the one thing that you, you, you try to, when you're writing this kind of book that you really want to try and get across, um, and I wouldn't claim to have succeeded in it necessarily by any means, is to give some sense of the kind of flavour of life, you know, the texture. It's all very well sort of telling the political story or saying, you know, the Minister of Paperclips sent this memo to, the, to, the, to his deputy or whatever it might be, but to give a sort of sense of what people were talking about in the pub or, or um, what was on the front pages when people went down and read the paper at breakfast, as so many people did, of course, in those days, um, that's in many ways one of the more, enjoy for me, one of the more enjoyable aspects of trying sort of recreating the period, really. So a sense of putting your shoes, your feet into shoes of the people in the past and getting a sense of what their lives yeah, were like. absolutely, yes. And to give you an example, I mean, you talk about shoes. There's a chapter in this book about um, schools and about... The 70s was a period of enormous um, controversy about schools and education. Of course, you just had the comprehensivization, uh, the advent of kind of progressive teaching, progressive teaching methods and so on. So there was all... You know, the papers were full of arguments about, about it. And um, I sort of framed that story about around one girl uh, called Tracy Lydon who went to uh, a comprehensive school um, in 1974, I think she started. And the sort of chapter starts off with her having a huge argument with her mum because she's been bought a pair of platform shoes which she's desperate to wear on the first day at school and her mum bans her from, from wearing them. Um, and I thought that was just a nice uh, way to, a way into, which you might not do in an academic book, but in a popular book, a sort of way into... Um, discussing the issue that would be maybe more accessible to uh, sort of non-academic readers mm -hmm. and brings back, you know, have, maybe has a, a free song of nostalgia mm -hmm. or something about it. Uh, but then you can sort of use that to kick off talking about these, these sort of long-term issues. Yeah. 
Um, you mentioned using newspaper articles as being a fun source. Maybe for our audience it might be interesting for you to explain how you used newspapers. Did you use them online mm-hmm. or... Um, I know Collindale has a newspaper yeah. archive. Uh, by and large, I do use them online. Uh, of course, you can go to Collindale if you are so disposed. It's a bit of a trek. So by and large, um, I'm probably just out of sheer laziness, uh, keener to use them online. You can use the – I have the Times, the uh, Mirror and the Express. Um, and the way I would generally do it is I would make a list, make a sort of mental list of um, topics I might have – oh, I don't know, 50 or 100 sort of keywords. Um, and then I'd just do searches. And then I'd mm. effectively end up just browsing because with something like, um, oh, The Guardian also as well, I, I uh, read online. And with those, you can sort of, you can read the edition of the paper. You can flip the pages online and, and see what was on the facing page. And, you know, and, you, and what you do is you get a real sense of how, you know, things don't happen in isolation. They don't happen in a vacuum. And a good way of thinking about that is... Um, the sense that a lot of, let's say, middle-class, quite conservative people had in the 70s, a lot of people of, of that sort of ilk uh, had this, you know, the country's going to the dogs, things are falling apart, all the rest of it. And it's, it, it becomes easier to understand that when you look at the, the paper they were reading and the way in which different articles on the same couple of pages were reinforcing that from different perspectives. So the same paper might have a story about... George Best walking out on training at Man United and going AWOL and going on a bender. Then there'd be a story about some horrific rape and murder. There'd be a story about pornography. There'd be a thing about inflation hitting 20%, a strike at British Leyland. And you sort of get a sense of how, you know, to sort of um, a man, you know, reading that in <coughs> Amersham before going off to his job as a middle manager, he'd, get a, he'd have a real feeling, gosh, it's all falling apart. And these things are all connected and they're part of this sort of generalised national decline and you i think you get you know you can get that from a paper in a way that you probably it's harder to get it from other kinds of sources and you mentioned earlier on that you um made a tv series out of Mm. um, seasons in the sun perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the differences between sort of working on your own versus working for the screen um yeah a lot of people ask that because obviously um you know you can reach uh far more people um, with a TV series than you ever can in a in a book, you know, I, I would imagine. Gosh, um, I think we probably uh, reached you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more people um, with a television series than you ever would with a book. And the the thing with the TV series is, I mean, the TV series was four episodes, four hours, and it was based on this book and its predecessor, State of Emergency, which is on the first half of the nineteen seventies. Uh, so it's effectively two hours per book. And that's about, what, an 800, 900-page book in two hours. And if you look at the script for one hour, uh, the script for one hour is shorter than one chapter of the book. So that gives you a sort of sense of how much you are distilling it, how much you are boiling it down. Um, I mean, in many ways, it really is an exercise in simplification. Uh, Of course, then you have to make it television-friendly. So there are some stories that... You know, you could say to the, I would say to the producer, "This is a brilliant story. We have to tell this story." And he'd say, "There's no footage. End of story." Just you know, need a picture. Yeah, we have no pictures for it, so it's untellable. You know, we're not going to put you on screen talking for ten minutes, yeah. much as you might like that. Yeah. That's yeah. not um, that's not going to happen. Um, and of course, there's a grammar of television which you're unaware of when you don't do it. So they have um, 
They have a sort of structure. They might tell eight to ten stories per hour, so seven minutes or so per story, uh, which isn't very long at all. You've got to wrap it all up in within seven minutes and then move on to the next. Uh, they want one location per story, so that's seven or eight locations per episode. So each story you tell must be linked to a particular uh, place. So, for example, um, uh, with, with, with this, we did a story about uh, education, and they wanted to do that at the school that was originally used as the location for Grange Hill when that came out in the late 70s. They found this school, they tracked it down, they got permission. They, and I said, oh, there's not that much about Grange Hill in my book. And they said, well, you know... We've got to, you've got to think of something to say about it because that's our location. Um, or, you know, we did uh, foreign holidays. We went to Torremolinos. And they'd got, lots of, um, they'd got lots of fantastic archive footage about Torremolinos. And we used that. You know, so they do it that way. And the script is very collaborative. People imagine that you are sitting down writing the script. But, of course, if you've not done television... You don't know what a television script looks like. Exactly. And, of course, you don't know what the pictures are going to be. You don't know the archive. So do you start, do you, do you submit a series of eight stories? No, no, no. Well, they, would, uh, they emerge in sort of, you have meetings and you kick around ideas. And then they come back to you and they say, right, we've, we think these are the, the stories. I mean, of course, it's all nominally based on, well, it is based on, the, the, on my book. Um, and they, they use the, the books a lot. Uh, but... To translate it into television is quite a complicated process, and it's you know some things you don't get permission for from the people who run the location, or you can't. The footage is you know the copyright is the person might release it or whatever it might be, um, and so the the way it always works is that the, pro- the producer or the director sort of drafts a skeleton script because they have an idea of where it's all going to fit in the film, and then I would go back and rewrite it all, and I'd say no, no, that's not right. I want to say this, and and that. So it sort of emerges. As it's a constant um, work of collaboration, and that is so different from writing a book, where it's basically just you. You know, I'm sitting in my study at home on my computer. I'm sort of the, you know, I'm in charge, as it were. Whereas when you're out on location, you've gone to Torremolinos, and they say, right, you're going to do it this way. You're going to be up on that balcony in the hotel, and we're going to, hammer's going to come up, and then you're going to tell this story or whatever. You know. You, you could sort of cause a huge fuss and, you know, um, wave your arms around and say, I'm not going to do it. But, of course, you're only there for a couple of days. So you, you, the, the, the trick really is to just get on with it and throw yourself into it and whatnot. And I think that's quite... Um, for a lot of writers who are used to being on their own and, and, and working on their own, that, and, and for me at first, uh, that's quite difficult to, to get used to. But actually I found the teamwork element of it really enjoyable and it was um, really fun. You know, a book like this, it's a, quite a long book. Um, generally, it's going to be bought only by people who, who like, really like history or are determined to inflict on it on a friend and relative. Um, a television program, of course, you're reaching a lot of people who are just looking for something to watch on a Tuesday or Thursday evening. So it's very satisfying to feel that you've actually reached this, this audience that is above and beyond anything that you could ever reach in a book. What did you learn through doing the TV series about um, presenting on TV? You know, oh. Rather than writing down, obviously yeah. it's a very different mode of communication, isn't it? Oh, it's hugely different. I think um, the idea that just because you're a good writer, you'd be a good presenter is, um, uh, you know, they're, they're two very different skills. I mean, um, 
I've done now three programs, two of which have, have not yet aired. Uh, two, a program about the car industry and a program about the Cold War, which are on a series about the Cold War, which will be on later this year. So I've sort of, I think, I hope, got better at it. When I was doing the 70s, I was very much finding my feet. And it is such a different skill because you, I mean, I hate to use the word sound bites, but that's effectively what you're doing. You're talking in sound bites. You're, you want to memorise a little bit of text and say it to the camera. And the thing that is most disconcerting is um, when you're doing the shots where you're in, out in public and you're walking down the street. Uh, the first day we're filming, it was you know my first day, I was very nervous, just met the crew, and we're in Birmingham, in the centre of Birmingham, and they wanted me to do a piece walking down outside New Street Station, the sort of um, big shopping streets in Birmingham. I'd walk down the centre of the street. The camera, meanwhile, was in a, a branch of Urban Outfitters. It was on the first floor the building on a corner behind the window, so, and they'd said, go down there, walk to the end of the street, and then walk towards us and say your lines. And, of course, no one else can see the camera. <laughs> I, I'm the only person who's aware the camera is there. And I could see them. They would, they would kind of give a wave, and they'd say, go. And I was apps. I mean, you know. So was, there's no one else around you? It's just oh, no, there's, there's, like, the camera there's like hundreds of people. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying. So, and, of course, and what you're saying is so obscure. So you sort of start off, and they'd say, go. And I'd say... In January 1972, inflation hit or something. And people sort of physically recoil from you. They think you're a madman. So that all takes an, a lot of getting used to. But actually, if you um, have a sort of um, buried am-dram sort of temperament, as I do, you get into it after a while and you just sort of think, OK, we've got now to do this. I better... Who cares if everybody thinks I'm a madman? I just I better crack on and do it. And that is the biggest... You know, that is so different to anything you'd be doing as a, as a writer. So did you have to kind of force yourself to kind of sell, sell your stories in quite a shouty way when uh, you're talking about soundbites? Well, I just think of Starkey when he's very dramatic and yeah. he kind of, you know, forces you to listen. Um, I think uh, there is... I think you have to find your own way of doing it and I think you... It's probably wrong to model yourself on another on another presenter I think you definitely do have to it's quite surprising when you watch it back you've given what you think is a very big performance and then you watch it back and because there's so much else going on um, it, it sort of looks very muted and after the first couple of days actually the producer said to me uh, one thing you do which you should learn is you keep dropping down at the end of a sentence whereas in TV we go up we, we become louder and more definite you know you sort of Instead of if your sentence ends and things were to change, instead of saying and things were to change, you say and things were to change. You know that kind of so it kind of rounds off the sound exactly. Bite. Which is, is very. I mean, when I first watched the, um, I first got the sort of rough cut discs, uh, which have the director's voice doing the commentary over the archive, and and then that sort of intercut with the bits they filmed with me. And I showed my wife, and she said, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, who, who are you pretending to be? You know, this is... No, um, so, you know, let's just say... Well, it's not quite a taste, Nothing maybe. like honesty from no, exactly. your family. <laughs> um, so, um, returning to your writing, I wonder... Because I know you've done written a lot of book reviews. I wonder mm. whether you've learned anything from all of the history books that you've read that you then incorporated or in, avoided in your own work. Oh, yes, uh, definitely. I probably review two or three books a month, uh, generally for the Sunday Times. So I see you know, lots of different history books. And um, 
you, you, I learn a, a, a lot from them. Um, just narrative tricks, ways to open chapters, ways to get the reader interested in something that might not be necessarily intrinsically fascinating, you know, a discussion of the economy or something. So how might um, you open a chapter or, you know, what, 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 what works do you think in terms of... Oh, you know? golly. Well, that's um, very much a matter of taste, but I think probably the two... If you think about it, I mean, I, I'm only using this analogy um, coincidentally. I'm not using it because I've also done the telly, but if you think about it in terms of camera lens... You know, you can focus in very tightly on something. You can have an individual story, an anecdote, and then widen it out afterwards and say this is sort of symbolic or typical of a, of a bigger trend and then go on to talk about the trend. The education story, the girl yeah, with yeah. the platform shoes is a good example. Or you can sort of start, you can open with very big. You can say yeah. education was one of the, the seismic issues of the 1970s. Da, 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 da. You know, there are different ways of doing that. And, um, of course, if you open every chapter the same way with an anecdote of that kind it would become possibly tiresome. Uh, but I think you can never, you know, I, I, the books I review are a, a real mixture. There's either books that are written by journalists about history or they're written by academics who have got a contract with, let's say, Penguin Books or Random House or something and writing for a mass audience. By and large, the Sunday Times doesn't review um, st strictly academic books. Um, and I think it's wrong that to uh, think, as people do, that there is... Um, you know, there are just two kinds of books, sort of uh, serious, sober academic books and there's cheap sellouts, as it were. I think there is a middle ground that a lot of historians, you know, Ian Kershaw, Richard Evans, John Guy, um, you know, these kinds of people are very good at bridging that gap. And you can give people stories with a lot of human interest and a lot of anecdote and colour, but that still make sophisticated arguments about the past. I think that's you know, the, you, when you're reading a book, especially if you're a reviewer and you're therefore reading it pretty quickly because you've got only a quick turnaround before you have to file your review, you, you prize human interest, as it were. You, you love the colour, the anecdotes and whatnot, because they keep you reading and they keep you interested. Um, it's very easy for writers, I think, to lose sense of that and to get sort of hung up on the historical debates or whatever. Um, and I think, you know, I've learnt a lot from somebody like uh, Peter Hennessy who writes about post-war history or David Kiniston of course uh, whose books were sort of my competitors in some ways um, come back in July I think it's Peter Hennessy <laughs> speaking <laughs> then um, yeah I've, I've learnt a lot from them and I think reading particularly reading books about other periods uh, gives you a sense of perspective you know a book you might read a book uh, I reviewed a book recently by a guy called Jeffrey Parker about the uh, 17th century it was just a global history of the 17th century um, you know, sort of massive scope and that allows you, you know, gives you a sense of perspective. If I'm writing about something that happened in January 1977, it seems piddling by comparison with these kind of great events and I think it's useful for people uh, it's a mistake that perhaps a lot of um, an inevitable one really for, for academics is that you get sort of very narrowly focused on your own topic and you lose a sense of perspective and I think it's really important to try and keep that. Yeah. And um which would you say of um, all the books that you've written are you most proud of? Oh, uh, or least ashamed of. <laughs> um, um, well, it's no, I guess different you know, readers will have their own opinions. I probably think they've got better because I know what I'm doing more. I think when I set out, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was sort of feeling my way and trying to find a voice. Um, I feel more confident about the most recent ones. I think the one that I 
probably enjoyed the most that I really sort of thought, you know, I wouldn't say, I, I might say to myself, and of course I'd never say it in public, um, oh, I've really nailed this, uh, is um, a State of Emergency, which is the one that precedes this, which is on the sort of Heath years, partly because the story was so... It was such a natural story, you know, it starts with him coming in and it ends with the sort of utter disaster of the three day week and the yeah. second minor strike and he's been kicked out and everything. And it was just the arc, the narrative arc, if you like, was really satisfying. I didn't have to sort of invest it with any false drama or, or sort of camp it up. It was already there. Um, and I just thought it was such a great story and it's such a sort of gloomy, apocalyptic ending that it just seemed to work. I mean, this one, um, the ending, I, I, you know, if I say so myself, I like the way that it ends. I mean, it's not no credit to me because the events happened as they did. But the way it ends with the winter of discontent and the sort of the no confidence debate, uh, Labour losing, Thatcher comes in and the sort of speech on the steps of number 10. It's all very sort of melodramatic stuff, really, which is, you know, it's, it's great. Yeah. You know, I don't, again, I don't have to... It, um, yeah, I don't have to embellish because the facts are all there. And one of the, whatever you think of Margaret Thatcher, whether you love her or loathe her, she is a good character to write about because, you know, I've written about an awful lot of grey haired men with glasses, I, like myself. Um, and, um, you know, suddenly she comes along and she's so, you know, she's so sort of strident in many ways, so outspoken. Uh, she's such a different kind of character that when she comes, came into the story and I was writing it, I thought, oh, this is really fun writing about her in a way that, you know, writing about uh, you know, Ted Heath or any of these other characters is never quite the same. I think Thatcher, because she's so polarising, makes her really good fun to write about. So what you're saying is that you hit your stride with your book writing on book number four. <laughs> so some of us have got a way to go uh, to well, catch up. Uh, about, yeah, about 3,000 pages in. <laughs> Goodness. And um, what are you working on now? Is it this final um, um, book? Well, there's, the this, there's this fifth book, uh, um, which I'm about uh, probably halfway through the research on. So the, the great thing about the, the Thatcher period, I mean, I know we're on the National Archives, so it's appropriate, is, is the archive material is amazing, partly because there's this thing called the Thatcher Foundation, which has this incredible website where they basically put everything that she ever said that she ever wrote that piece of paper that crossed her desk it's all there they've got all the national archive stuff released and put online so you know the sort of you've just got a deluge of stuff you know you can type in anything to see if she talked about it you can do it by day so you know exactly what she did in the day so it's easy to get you know there's always the danger of thatcher kind of overwhelming the book um but there's other th things that are i mean this this uh early 80s book is really good fun because it, it's the first period that I really remember because um, although I was born in 74 you know the early stuff you know I was in a paddling pool or something yeah. while it was going on uh, whereas the early 80s there are things that I very clearly remember not the big miners strike or the Falklands War but things like uh, my parents we bought our first home computer in 1983 and you know the story of the advent of home computers is, of course, hugely important in the long run. They were seen as very gimmicky at the time, but in the long run, it's very important. So that's very good fun to to research. And there's lots of um, good stories about that. You know, MPs getting up in the House of Commons and saying, you know, space invaders is undermining the moral fire of the nation, and all of this kind of thing, which you can always find, and is always sort of good for a good for a laugh, really. 
And uh, there's another a great thing with the 80s, which is uh, they restarted a thing called the Mass Observation Project, where they got ordinary people to um, write in effectively diaries and, and accounts of what was going on in their lives. And a lot of them have been put online as well. And they're a fantastic resource. And the interesting thing about that is how few of them mention politics or Mrs. Thatcher, um, but they're talking about you know little things like the introduction of the 20p piece, which a lot of people are very happy about, or the abolition of the pound note and the introduction of the pound coin, uh, or you know their experiences of going abroad or going to the shops. Did they go to a supermarket? Did they shop locally? These kinds of things that allow you actually to get out b- beyond the political story and to write about sort of daily life in the 80s and how that was changing. Uh, and I think it was actually changing very dramatically and, and hopefully we'll be able to bring that across in the book. And presumably those mass observation... Um, diaries from the 80s have been used a lot less than the ones from during the Second World War, yeah. which have been very heavily, heavily Yeah, there's mined. only... Um, well, people are only starting to write. There's probably three or four books about the 1980s. Um, you know, I can probably imagine there's people in the audience thinking, the 80s, is that history? Um, and I Journalism. Think, yeah, journalism. Well, exactly. Uh, so it's fun because it's slightly virgin territory, really. Um, and people, and it's still the other thing about the eighties, of course, is that it's it's in many ways the period that it's the beginning of our current political kind of order, if you like. So when you're talking about the nineteen eighties, in many ways you are talking about now as well, and that makes it all the more interesting, I think, to sort of get your teeth into. Yeah, great. Well, now we're going to turn a little bit um, um, to look at Dominic Moore as a writer. So I wonder, maybe you could tell us when you first decided that you'd become a writer. Well, I was always, uh, like probably a lot of people who you've had in this series, um, I was always interested in, in writing. And I remember at school, we were when I chose my A-levels, the English teacher in the first lesson after we chose an A-level English said, why do you, you know, why have you chosen English? It was sort of, you know, just an icebreaker. And I said um, to the universal scorn of my contemporaries oh I, I really like writing essays and he said ah an essay pervert um, and I think um, probably that's the root of it I am a bit of an essay pervert and um, so I always enjoyed that side of things and I did my PhD but I always felt a little bit constrained by the sort of quite narrow focus of the PhD and the fact that you know basically nobody was ever going to read it um, so I thought, I, I always had this hankering after writing things that people would read. Um, and I got an academic job and I was, you know, merrily teaching away and doing all of that kind of thing. And I had, as, as part of the job, we had a, a half a year's leave, research leave to turn your PhD into a book. And I did that, at the, I, I was able to do that quite quickly. And then I started writing what became Never Had It So Good, the first of these, these four books. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. I, I found uh, that I loved getting up in the morning, going straight to the computer, typing away. Um, you know, it sort of came quite naturally, as it were. Um, and I think once you've got that sort of bug, it's, it's hard to kick it. You know, you've, um, it was something that I, I always grew up reading narrative histories, uh, you know, even Gibbon or something. I loved reading and, and the idea of doing it myself was very appealing. And so when you're, you're writing your books, do you have a sort of daily routine? Um, yes. I mean, the way that it works with these is that um, what I effectively do is I do all the reading, all the research first, and then I write it up, as it were. Um, I almost think of it in terms of a sort of 
a bit like I know this is a, sounds sort of um, depressingly formulaic way to think about it, but almost like a sort of scientist. I do my experiments and then I write up the conclusions. So um, the first period, the first half of the sort of process is I try and read everything, every book I can on the subject. I do all the um, read the, you know, the cabinet papers or whatever, read the newspapers, uh, do all that sort of thing. Uh, what I make a list of the TV programmes or the films from that period. You know, I've got a big pile of kind of Alfie and pet DVDs and whatnot at home that I have to work my way through for the 80s. Um, so I, I do all that in the day. I mean, obviously, my wife sometimes gets home and says, you've been watching DVDs all day and you're still in your pyjamas. What, what are you contributing to the household? Um, but, uh, and then there's the period where I just... Get, I write it all up, as it were. So I organise all my notes, get it all clear on my mind, what each chapter is going to be about and what it's going to say, and then I just go for it. Um, and I write pretty quickly. I mean, I probably write, if I have a really good day, I'd perhaps write, I don't know, between three and 4,000 words a day, maybe. Uh, so I sort of, the machine, when I've turned on the machine, as it were, it sort of, you know, cranks away. And... Um, I send chapters, I send sort of chunks of the book, maybe a, a fifth at a time or something, to my editor at Penguin, who then sends them back uh, with comments and whatnot. So I'm, while I'm writing the rest of it, I'm... Uh, Getting feedback on exactly. the um, But, uh, you know, it's sort of... In many ways, these books are all part of one project. So I sort of know now you know, what works and what doesn't, how long it needs to be, uh, the sort of style and whatnot. So it's not too tricky. So when a book like this is commissioned, yeah. do you have an idea of how long it will take roughly to write? I do, and it's always wrong. Um, <laughs> every book that I've written I've been late on, which is a bit embarrassing. Uh, so this one was a year late. The one before, I think, was a year late. Um, so how long did this one take you to write? Well, so it's a sort of shameful thing. story, really, because um, the first two books never had it so good and white heat were meant to be one book. And I wrote too much, and it got split into two and was published in successive years. And then I said, that's ridiculous. You know, no one's going to read one book on four years of the 1970s. I'll do the 70s in one book, the whole lot. And I just got up to about, I don't know, January 1973 or something. And my editor said, this is, you know, this is clearly going to be more than one book again. <laughs> uh, so again, we divided it. So I started that one and State of Emergency. <laughs> Uh, in about 2006, seven, started the research. State of Emergency then came out in 2010, and that one in 2012. So it takes quite a long, you know, yeah. quite a long time. Um, but I'm sort of, you know, I talk about starting the research, but of course I've read, you know, because they're covering quite small periods, the same reading and same research often works for all yeah. of the books, yeah. and it's not like it's completely unknown to me what happens yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Um, but you know, I've so I think it's becoming a bit quicker because I know now what I'm doing much more. You know, I've yeah. got the the system, as it were, <laughs> and my note taking and all of that kind of thing. Um, and I know in the part. I mean, there's a lot of. I know this will probably sound extraordinary, but there's actually a lot that's cut out of these books that ends up on the cutting room floor. You know, vast digressions on the career of Larry Grayson or something. <laughs> that my editor says, you know, enough is enough. This has got to go. <laughs> And I think I'm just learning now, you know, to rein myself back. Because that's the difficulty with something like this, 
is that because the subject is, although it's a narrow chronologically, it's quite a big subject in terms of themes, yeah. is, is knowing when to stop, really, and knowing when to come back to your main story and to forget the sort of side alleys and whatnot. So um, you describe yourself as a freelance writer, is that...? Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. so. For for people who are in a sort of office office job, mm-hmm. um, maybe you could explain what it's like to be a freelance writer. What an average week would entail? Is it oh. is it nine to five on your book, or are there other projects that you work uh, on alongside? Well, for me, there's um, uh, I, 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 my dream is a week when I would just be able to work on the book. Um, but of course, uh, without sounding too um, uh, too tawdry about it, there is the matter of the mortgage and, and yeah. so on and so forth. So um, I do quite a lot of other things. I do a lot of journalism and I've, I've started doing the TV and whatnot. And the way that maybe it works is in a given week, I might write uh, two journalistic pieces um, and sort of try, I fit them in around the book writing or the book research. And you know, every now and again there would be a TV thing, or there'd be something like this, uh, which of course well, I'm, I'm, I'm not technically working when I'm when I'm here. So I sort of try, factor that in and don't try and you know, it's difficult. You have to you have to uh, tread a fine line between you you want to do things so that people know you still exist, uh, but also you don't want to do so much that you end up you know you destroy any possibility of getting the next book out um, this century. Uh, so that's the sort of difficulty, really, in, in sort of juggling um, the different balls. And I think that's the thing that for a lot of freelance writers, you know, the nature of being a freelance writer is that you're, you don't have a salary. So you do have to keep doing lots of things to effectively keep your bank manager happy, um, but without losing your focus on the main project. And for me, the books are always the main project. The rest of the stuff is fun, but it's a, it's a sort of a distraction or a means to an end. And are there any particular writers who you admire or any any books that you wish that you'd written? Oh, crikey. Uh, lots. I mean, in terms of the, the historian that I always... I know it's such a terrible cliché, but the historian that I always enjoyed reading the most was Gibbon, uh, his decline and fall. Um, I loved the kind of ironic sensibility, the wryness and whatnot, uh, the sweep of it, the kind of epic scale, um, and the sort of... Um, the precise detail at the same time, the character, the sense of character that came through. In terms of modern historians, I mean, there are, there are, there are lots of uh, modern historians that I, I, I used to, uh, again, for the same reason. I, I like historians who might make you laugh from time to time, which is not necessarily always the case, or who, have, who seem to have a sort of a wryness. Someone like A.J.P. Taylor, for example, would put the odd sort of joke into his footnotes or whatever. Um, you know, I, I don't know... Uh, uh, Richard Evans' books on the Third Reich, I think, are brilliant. Uh, Ian Kershaw, who was my uh, head of department when I was an academic at Sheffield, his two-part biography of Hitler, I think, is uh, an amazing piece of work. Uh, In terms of modern, sort of recent British history, um, I don't know. Uh, Richard Davenport Hines' book on the Profumo scandal, I think, is very good. The Kiniston books and so on and so forth. I mean, I think there's... um, you know, it's a difficult balance to pull off the, being a, a writer and a historian because a lot of historians aren't necessarily very good writers and a lot of very good writers aren't necessarily good historians. And I think the two ne- don't necessarily go in tandem. And y- what I've tried to do, what I like, are books that do have a sense of character 
and a sense of kind of timing and pace and all the rest of it. And of course, it's easy to lose those things if you just get absorbed by the detail. And that's the that's the difficult that's the trick that's sort of hard to pull off, really. I wonder if you have any tips that you could give to our aspiring authors in the audience. Oh, right. What sort of tips? Or, or lessons you've learnt through the process of writing. Well, I think the thing, I mean, a good tip, actually, people often ask me, who's your ideal reader? And I often say, well, it's, you know, I write the book that I would want to read. Um, I enjoy the journey, as it were. It's like, a bit like going on a, writing a travel book and you kind of going on holiday and seeing all the places yourself. I enjoy that part of it as much as I do the actual writing. Yeah. But I think it's important to keep, have a sense of the reader in mind, and it's something that's very difficult to do, to, to put yourself into the shoes of a reader who's not necessarily as interested in this as you are and doesn't know as much and is not you know, as obsessed by it and is not going to read it all in one go but write, read a book over a month or something. Um, and that's, you know, keep... You have to keep, in some ways, persuading your reader. But if you write a book for a general audience, that is, you have to keep reminding your reader why they are reading this book, why it's fun to read it. Um, and I think that's a really useful exercise, to keep saying, who am I imagining reading this book? Are they on a train going somewhere? Are they lying in bed reading it? Um, you know, are they, why you've got to try and remember that and to reach out to them and to make it, yeah, frankly, to make it fun, to, so that they are reading it not merely for sort of uh, education or elucidation but for, yeah but for enjoyment and i think that's the most important thing to get out of any book great well thank you very much talk is recorded on the 11th of june 2013 at the national archives q this talk was sponsored by the friends of the national archives this podcast is copyright to the national archives all rights reserved.